Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the club that you're gonna want to join. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello, friends and all new subscribers. Welcome back to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. On the show today, Jeff Goldstein, president and founder of the Lung Transplant Foundation, a nonprofit organization that provides education and emotional support for transplant recipients and their caregivers, as well as raising tons of money for lung transplant research. Jeff was diagnosed in his mid-40s in peak health with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Lots of syllables, very bleak outcome. And yet, 18 years later, he's still here to talk about not just his incredible story, but the extraordinary partnership he struck with Nord's rare launch research-ready program to kick off their first patient registry for this truly undervoiced community. This is a great show. You're going to love it. Let's get started. Jeff Goldstein, thanks for coming on NordPod. Thank you, Matthew, for inviting me. My pleasure. I always like to start out with the personal story, sort of the the one-on-one of what got you here. And I can't help but notice that you had a double lung transplant 18 years ago, Mazel Tov, on 18. But let's unpack that. That's not something you kind of just say lightly. Uh, that's true. And it, it didn't happen lightly. I was taken out the trash one day. And I fell to the curb. I, I couldn't catch my breath. And the following, on a Sunday, that following Wednesday, I was diagnosed with an end-stage lung disease called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, a fibrotic lung disease that uh, presages a lung transplant if you want to survive. And so I made arrangements to receive a double lung transplant. I was transplanted at uh, Duke University Hospitals on July 6th of 2003. Every day I wake up, First, I'm grateful, and then I'm fearful. Fearful of the process that takes most lung transplant recipients within the first five years, and another significant percentage at 10 years. It's estimated that there's only 20% of us left alive after 10 years due to uh, complications from transplant 
called rejection, primarily bronchiolitis obliterans. This form of rejection destroys the small airways, the bronchioles. So like the pre-transplant lung diseases, the, all the fibrotic lung diseases, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, cystic fibrosis, etc. This fibrotic component destroys the alveoles where the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide takes place. So it's kind of a slow suffocation. And uh, if you, if I can paint a picture for you, imagine trying to breathe through a straw that continually gets, uh, whose diameter is continually reduced. You know, I worked in cancer advocacy for 15 years and we had this running joke because, you know, only cancer people can tell cancer jokes, which is that the more syllables, the worse off. And just idiopathic itself is way too many syllables to even start whatever came after that. So I can only imagine the absolute and utter trepidations. And this is 18 years ago. I want to talk later in the show about how far we've come in the practice of going through this. I was diagnosed in 96. So it was like medieval times with brain cancer. But to the extent that this was delivered to you 18 years ago, what was the treatment back then? There were no treatments back then. It was, uh, it is, and and still it is an end stage lung disease. There are a couple of therapies that were, have been developed specifically for uh, pulmonary fibrosis, this fibrotic lung disease, but it only works on a small amount of the patient population. And if you're lucky, it just slows the progression. So ultimately, if you want to survive any of the end stage lung diseases, you'll need a, a lung transplant. And if you're fortunate enough to be accepted at a program and then fortunate enough to get the uh, gift of life, another pair of lungs, um, then you're going to want to protect those very, very carefully. And just to back up a bit, you're right, idiopathic is a lot of symbols, and it's just a medical term for we don't know what causes it. So are lung transplants the same in terms of donations, in terms of like kidney and heart? Are you on a registry waiting list? Yes. uh, Great question. It it is the same process in terms of evaluation at at the transplant center, and that includes your current health status, how sick you are, and in the lung transplant process, you are given a, what's called a lung allocation score at that center. Your name and all that information is entered into a massive computer system at UNOS, which stands for United Network of Organ Sharing. And that's the uh, government public uh, entity that manages uh, the distribution of organs for transplant. Organs are, uh, when they're made available, they are uh, retrieved by a, I use the word in quotes, localized organization called an OPO for an organ procurement organization. These organizations reside in various areas of the country. Um, I think there's 13 or 15 of them, I can't remember, but they're responsible for retrieving the organs from kidneys to livers to hearts to lungs, etc. within that region, and then they're matched via the UNOS computer system to the individual who needs them most and, of course, meets certain criteria, blood match, um, histamine match, etc. And the best match is, is offered to that individual at the transplant center. And if you're fortunate enough to get that, 
you could proceed with a with a lung transplant. That's extraordinary. How old is the lung transplant procedure? When was the first one done? Uh, memory serves me correctly. It's like, I think, 83 or 84. It was not very successful. And um, I think it took two or three years, again, if memory serves me correctly, for the process to start to really gain traction. And, and that was because the anti-rejection medicines weren't uh, fully developed. And those anti-rejection medicines, which prevent any individual who's received a organ transplant, a solid organ transplant from rejecting them, those medicines were designed and developed for kidney transplant recipients. And that remains true today for lung transplant patients. None of the medications that we take to survive and deal with the myriad of complications that we're subjected to over the life of our post-transplant process, none of them were developed for lung transplant. They're all off-label, and sometimes a doctor will tell you, we'll, we'll try it and, and hope it works. So like I said, we're going to fast forward to today in the second part of the show, but I really do want to dive into the extent that you're willing to share the impact that this had on you, your family, children, relatives, friends. Yeah, Matthew, that's, that's, um, that's a really hard, uh, it's a hard thing for all of us to, to uh, relive, quite frankly. I was in my early uh, 40s, mid-40s. I had a business that was doing very well and, and uh, a lovely wife, and it, was, it, ch it changed overnight. With, with that diagnosis, everything changed. You know, within a short period of time, I lost my business. I wasn't able to act as the president and CEO and chief bottle washer. And so, and, and I had to make arrangements to survive. And that meant going to Duke, upending my, my life and my wife's life to spend the time there to, to complete the transplant process. So most centers require that you be within a certain a radius of the center and it's generally two to four hours so that when you're notified, you can get to the center in time uh, so that uh, any of the organs that are delivered, in my case, lungs, right, would still be viable. And so for us, that required us moving to the North Carolina area to accommodate that and participate in a pre-transplant conditioning program while waiting, right, for the call. And I got to tell you, it's pretty, pretty difficult to upend your life to do something like that. We left the house here. My wife actually had to apply for a transfer, and we had to commit to being in the Raleigh-Durham area for three years as part of that. And so it really, really changed our life. And while traumatic as it was for my wife and I, it was really the only option. We we knew what we had to do to survive. And I, at one point I told my, my, my doctor, sorry, you get me the lungs and I'll do the rest. Ah, I love that. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it's the hardest thing I have ever done and could ever have imagined. I was the model pre-transplant recipient running around the track and doing all the exercises and record time and being done when everybody else was still working on it. And... <laughs> After my transplant, <laughs> oh, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. Is this condition typically 
in the older populations? Were you the odd man out in your 40s, perfectly healthy to get this? No. So IPF, I, I was pretty much within the model. It typically affects uh, males in the mid-40s. The disease, depending upon when you're diagnosed, can take years to fully develop and affect you. And then you kind of drop off the end of a chart. It's interesting. I read an article while researching it. If you could take all the tissue in your lungs and spread them out on a flat surface, it would cover the square area of a tennis court. Wow. So you can imagine that, you know, how much damage you'd have to have in the lungs for, for you to start to feel it and then reach that point where you have no other option but to get a lung transplant because you're, you know, slowly suffocating to death. Do you feel that when you're brought into like, let's just call it like the <laughs> the idiopathic store that you never wanted to shop in, you really have no mentor or greeter to tell you what to do when you're partially reliant on your own maybe uh, embedded chutzpah to stand up for yourself and know what you want, take charge. Clearly, you had to upend everything you chose to move. You managed that. Most people don't have that. Is it fair to think that most people just may not have that embedded chutzpah and perhaps your observations on that for yourself and other people? Uh, great question, Matt. Great, great question. So, yes, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to have, <laughs> to have the chutzpah and that real desire to survive. And over the years that I've been in, involved in the lung transplant world, that's, that's not true of everybody. You know, that's a choice an individual has to make. But uh, I, I can tell you that um, it's challenging. And you're right. There's, at least back then, there were few places that an individual who was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or for, any, for that matter, any other lung end-stage lung disease could go to, um, they would go to the organizations like, uh, you know, that were related to their diagnosis. So if you, if I Googled idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, I would find a lot of information about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or IPF, um, but very little about transplant. And that was true for a lot of the end-stage lung disease organizations. Very little was was very little information was given about lung transplant and primarily because it was a, a lot more challenging process back then, a lot less successful. And in a lot of organizations, they didn't feel comfortable in recommending it to their population because they were concerns about, you know, the outcomes. So that, that's been a challenge, a lot better now. And I like to think that's because of my chutzpah and the organization I formed called the Lung Transplant Foundation that advocates and agitates on behalf of, of lung transplant patients. Back with our guest after the break. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. 
And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's been said that we're all kind of born of our condition and we often make the choices we never expected to have. You know, man plans, God laughs, that cat poster kind of thing. I never knew I would start a nonprofit organization. I just knew at some point after I was through all of my nonsense that it made sense because I felt like I could do something that needed to exist that no one else had done. And again, so you started a nonprofit organization. Let's talk about your decision to do that the struggles perhaps to get it off the ground. We can share all the um, war stories we want in terms of being nonprofit founders, but the Lung Transplant Foundation, was it the first of its kind? Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. It came about because I started losing friends that I had been in the pre-transplant program at Duke with to this rejection issue, boss. And I'm, I, I was a businessman for, for the longest time. And uh, prior to my transplant. And I couldn't understand why we would spend as a public, private insurance, uh, healthcare, et cetera, why we would spend uh, upwards of a million dollars to perform a lung transplant and, and treat and manage the individual post-transplant and not have anything developed for these rejection issues. I couldn't understand it. And as I, I got involved with a uh, uh, non-for-profit here in South Florida, connected to organ donation. And I learned a little bit about it and decided that I needed to do something to further this cause. And that was pretty naive. I thought, hey, I'd start this foundation. I'll raise a couple million dollars real quick and we'll fund some research and find a cure. <laughs> Famous last words. Yes, exactly. Here we are uh, some 13 years later and, and we're just now pushing the envelope. <laughs> Yeah, I used to be told, so how was Stupid Cancer, that was the name of the organization I started, how was this so successful? And I was like, well, it's an overnight success that took 14 years. You're exactly right. It's an overnight success that took us 14 years, a lot of hard work, a lot of time and effort, a lot of money, fundraising, uh, some from some wonderful supporters. And, and quite frankly, I think most of it is due to the success of our community, our, our lung transplant recipients who are connected to the organization who support us and help us through the hard times, if you will. Uh, so, 
we've remained true to those connections. And I think, you know, what we've been very successful at to date is disseminating information to the lung transplant community about what's available to them in terms of treatments and therapies. We've developed a very robust program for mentoring both patients and their caregivers. I can imagine what you went through as well. You have a caregiver. I think sometimes that's harder. You have a loved one who's going through something like what you experienced or what I've experienced or any end-stage lung disease patients experience. That caregiver feels it as well and I think experiences that frustration of not being able to do anything. So we offer this mentorship program. We connect them to people who have been through the experience as well and help them get through it. That's a very, very successful program for us. We've been doing it now for three years. We're very, very proud of it. It's called the Joseph J. Carter Mentorship Program, named after an individual who who donated some money to start it with us, whose husband was unable to find anybody to help him because he was diagnosed with a very rare end-stage lung disease. And it can't be understated the value of adding the caregiver conversation to your mission. And again, we started this in the 2000s when, you know, we were just so worried about dying immediately that anyone else, nothing really mattered. We just wanted to get enough done. And then everyone else was kind of second because it mattered if you lived. <laughs> Level set the conversation. So kudos on bringing that narrative into your mission. It's so important and so critical. I did want to jump into, again, channeling our nonprofit founder war stories, you wanted to launch a patient registry and you are partnering with Nord, an organization that I was a member of in 1996 because pediatric brain cancer is a rare cancer and you belong to Nord on day one. So talk about how you managed to integrate with Nord and what possessed you to start a registry? Another great question, Matt. So, so bronchiolitis obliterans, or BOS, which is this uh, disease that uh, uh, takes the lives of almost 50, 55% of uh, lung transplant recipients at, after 10 years, is a rare disease, as, as described by the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA. And we became aware of NORD uh, probably three or four years ago through an individual that I met uh, who was previously involved in the American Thoracic Society's uh, public advisory roundtable. And uh, she connected us and we immediately got involved with the organization because we understood the value of connecting to uh, people and organizations that you know, were experiencing the same uh, processes and frustrations that we were. And through, again, through my ATS uh, public advisory roundtable or PAR connections, we came to know a, a company that's got some incredible technology for um, diagnosing um, changes in, in lung function. And uh, over the last two or three years as they've been developing that, we've been watching it very carefully and we came to believe that this could be a very valuable tool in not just managing lung transplant rejection issues, but managing changes in all end-stage lung diseases. So an individual is diagnosed, with, say, with cystic fibrosis at a, an early age. They need to be monitored for a lot of years before they might 
need a transplant. And exposure to CAT scan and, and um, radiation can be a problem. So this process that 4D Medical has developed is going to be what we think is really, really instrumental in managing uh, patients with, um, with lung diseases pre and post transplant or pre and post end stage, if you will. And they came to us and said, you know, what can we do? And we said, well, we want to, we want to jump on this opportunity, um, bring it to lung transplant centers and, and make them aware of this so they can see what this is about. And how do we, how does the Lung Transplant Foundation use that opportunity to connect to the patients, right? And we talked to several organizations about how to do this. And some were so complicated that, that even our techies didn't understand it. And, and others, we just couldn't find the right fit. And we became aware of the NORD uh, registry program and and jumped on it. We contacted them immediately. We actually attended a couple of webinars, find out more about it. And we reached out and connected to Suzanne and uh, Danielle at, um, at Nord, and they were extremely helpful in connecting us to the program. And, and it's a perfect match. It's a perfect match to, to help us develop our registry, um, connect to patients, make our patients feel comfortable about collecting the data that we're going to ask for and how we'll use it. All, all very important aspects of, of uh, managing a registry uh, in terms of how the patient perceives it. I like to think at certain points in your life, you've learned enough, you're done with your skills, you, you're baked, and then all of a sudden there's a registry. Can you talk about like the top two or three aha moments you've had understanding the value and the impact this actually has to patients? Yeah, so I would say the first aha moment was when I saw the technology on a screen, a 4D uh, vision of, of the lungs showing uh, ventilatory changes as a result of uh, an end-stage lung disease, and, and just thought it was incredible. The next second aha moment was I realized that a wider adoption of, the, of this technology would help us manage patients better. We always say that Early diagnosis leads to early treatment, leads to better outcomes. And this was right up the alley. And then the third aha moment was I, when I was on that webinar about the Nord Registry, and I can't remember who was running it, but I, at the end of it, I said, this is exactly what our community needs. This is exactly how we can manage it. It's exactly how I can answer all the questions and concerns that our committee and board members had about establishing a registry and it's also probably the best way that we can make the transplant centers that we're going to engage in this program and registry, we can make them feel comfortable about working with the Lung Transplant Foundation as part of this process. So just for the listeners, that the Rare Launch Research Ready Program is, is a thing that NORD hosts every year. And yeah, this is kind of an, an, an advertisement for it because it really makes a lot of sense to all of the nonprofit founders and the nonprofit researchers and the advocates that are looking into, you know, it's kind of like, is this right for you? It probably is. Sell us on how important this has been to the nonprofit you started, the Lung Transplant Foundation. Well, I, I would say, first of all, anybody who, any organization, nonprofit that's considering a, a, a registry for whatever that registry might be. 
uh, I would certainly suggest you uh, get connected to NORD and involved here and learn more about the programs. It's extremely flexible and manageable, which is a pretty significant part, as I've learned, a pretty significant part of, of developing a registry. So that's one. And, and I, I can't really overestimate the value of, of having a registry that's being managed by an organization such as NORD. Their reputation for what they do, um, how they do it, and how they represent patient communities of, of you know, experiencing rare diseases is extraordinary. And so connecting with, with an organization as, such as NORD, really, quite frankly, uh, between you and me, I think uh, gives us a lot of credibility and actually will challenge us to up our game and, and make this as, as valuable to our community as we think it will be. So no one ever wakes up one day and says, I can't wait to be on the public advisory roundtable of the American Thoracic Society. <laughs> and yet, here you are all these years later. I want to sort of wrap up the interview by you talking about what it means to be a patient advocate and building something that you wished that you had had 18 years ago. Wow. That's a that's an extraordinary question. So um, you have 30 seconds. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> So I was asked to speak at an ATS conference because a board member of mine, a founding board member of mine, was too sick to do so. And I took her place. She subsequently passed away and was asked to be to participate in the, in the PAR for the ATS. That connection is, has been extraordinarily just incredible for the development of the Lung Transplant Foundation and our connection. So, you know, I, I could have never imagined asking for that, wasn't even aware of that. And it was a fortuitous invite, quite frankly. And certainly we've jumped on the opportunity to leverage that opportunity and build connections all throughout the medical community and organizations, national organizations, government organizations to advocate and, and agitate on behalf of our patient population. You had me at advocate and agitate. I think that's going to be our band name if we start one, which we should. <laughs> Jeff Goldstein, president and founder of the Lung Transplant Foundation, Mensch Advocate. Amazing story. Thank you for making the huge dents in the universe that needed to be made on behalf of your community and joining us here on NordPod. Thank you, Matt. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org. <laughs>